Hey everyone, I'm Aditi Nayak, the Editor-in-Chief of the Amherst STEM Network, and today I wanted to introduce you to Dr. Victoria Fang. Dr. Fang recently completed her MD-PhD at NYU, a program that allowed her to earn her medical degree while also earning a PhD for her research projects. She is currently a dermatology resident at the University of Pennsylvania. Her goal is to be a physician scientist, running a research lab that does translational research to help patients. Her experiences along this path, however, created a space for a whole new way that she improves the world with her science. She founded Journal Club to make biomedical research more accessible by accompanying published research papers with existing author talks. Now, rather than summarize the transformative experiences she's had along the way, Dr. Fang, I would love if you could introduce your path to where you are today. So I came into Amherst thinking that I would be a neuroscience and philosophy major. Um, I liked science, thought the brains were cool. And also I did debate in high school. So I was gonna do those and then become a patent lawyer. That was like my um, initial idea. Ultimately today I'm um, a dermatology resident in a research track at, at Penn. I got my MD PhD at NYU, so entirely different. And I think one thing that I wanted to emphasize is you really don't need to know exactly what you wanna do going in and throughout, and you can always change. And Amherst, I think really does give you the tools to think and think critically and like become successful, you know, in whatever you wanna do ultimately. In terms of, you know, going through Amherst and where I am now, before Amherst, as I said, I was going to do law. And um, as part of my neuroscience prereqs, there was a lot of, you know, science and math and everybody in those classes is pre-med. And so I sort of just started thinking about it because everybody else was thinking about it. Um, I would say my parents actually didn't really want me to become a doctor. My mom was like, well, it's kind of hard because you're always seeing people on a, a bad day in their lives, right? Because they're not feeling well or whatever. Um, and then through my science classes, I found that I really loved thinking about science. I really liked research components. I love my science classes and my science professors. And so, you know, from being in Professor Goot's classes, Professor Hood, a lot of my biology classes and professors, I just love them and I wanted their job, right? I wanted to be able to talk science with students, teach them, have them over at my house and um, talk more science. So I, I did think I was gonna pursue a PhD um, with medicine sort of in the background and then ultimately met some people who are going to do an MD PhD and so ultimately decided that that is just the perfect marriage because you get to think about science certainly and you are you know you're helping people and as you're treating people you can see where the treatments are really lacking and what diseases don't have good treatments and what things need more research this is all very human centric, right? And um, there's tons of research that's not biomedical. That's also fascinating. Um, but to me, this was what I was interested in. And so talking to advisors, alumni, like people who had done it before me, I decided to pursue the MD PhD path. A lot of people will take time off before applying or before starting their MD PhD, either doing research for a year or two um, before formally starting that. I had done some research at Amherst. I had done some summer research. And so I felt like I had enough research on my 
um, experiences list where I, I just applied um, to start straight out of Amherst. So I just graduated from NYU with my MD-PhD in 2019. And so was in school straight through um, for eight years after college and now at Penn for residency training. Wow, that's amazing. Now, starting as someone who is interested in patent law to becoming someone who ultimately pursued biomedical research, I'm sure you experienced a wide variety of classes during your time at Amherst. Do you have any favorites? I'll say a couple that are outside of science because we may talk about more science later on. Um, but one was Austin Sarat's class on punishment. And I remember I hadn't taken a class with him yet. Obviously people loved his classes. And I remember, um, basically I was like, I'm not gonna do great in this class because writing's not my forte, but it sounds really interesting. Um, and so I took it, I begged him to let me take it. Uh, what is it called, like audit it or pass fail? And he said, no, but I was like, fine, whatever. And yeah, I, I, you know, it brought my GPA down, but like it was one of my favorite classes to this day and I still am so glad I took it. Um, and another one was actually um, Professor Epstein's class on Nazi Germany. And one of the takeaways from that class, which may be, may be controversial, but the concept was, why did it seem like a lot of people who ended up doing really, really horrible things um, do those things? And a lot of the people who ultimately committed crimes, horrible, unspeakable crimes, were just like people without any evidence of like violence or hatred in their past. And the concept and idea was basically when people are put into these contexts where authority is really um, a big deal and everyone else around you is doing the same thing, then a lot of these people who you never would have thought would commit these crimes are affected by their environment so much that they do so. And my takeaway from that was, God, I hope that if put in that situation, I would be better than, than, than those people. But I also now, you know, um, when other people do things that I don't like or, I'm annoyed by that, that person. And I'm like, I don't understand why this person would do that. I'm more willing to be like, this person probably has other factors that contributed to them behaving this way. And it's highly possible that if I were in that person's shoes, even though I really despise that behavior right now, like I might do the same thing. And so it allows me to be more accepting, I think of other people. That was a really long-winded answer. No, it's just, it's so clear that those classes stuck with you. And I'd imagine they also inform your path as a physician scientist. Personally, I believe too many people separate the humanities and STEM, when in reality, it's my humanities classes that help me decide how I can thoughtfully use the technical skills I learn in the sciences. So after learning that you wanted to pursue an MD, PhD during your time at Amherst, how did you decide on attending NYU? Um, I applied to like um, the top programs and then heavily favored programs in the Northeast because my family is in New Jersey and New York. Um, and I, I did want to stay in the Northeast, so that was a big part of it. I don't know if I touched on this already, but 
you know, I didn't have a full year or two of technician experience before I applied to MD-PhD. Um, and a lot of your schools, like top schools are sometimes looking for that or, you know, the other applicants have publications already. Um, and I didn't have those publications yet, but I think that because I had so many different experiences in different areas of research through my summer experiences and through my thesis with um, Professor Goot, that I was able to show that I can handle a lot of different types of research and that I was, I really loved it. Um, and NYU, you know, saw that in me. And, and even though I didn't have a paper, you know, they, we, when they interviewed me, they seemed very interested. Um, and I just loved the students here that I met um, here at NYU. <laughs> um, and so that was, that made me very excited about going there. Combined with the fact that New York City is a crazy place, but a great place for your 20s. Uh, they had amazing, you know, immunology and cancer research. Um, and as far as how NYU was, uh, my husband and I both loved our time there. Um, I do some of these panels for NYU as well, just because I was a, like a rah-rah NYU person, similarly to how I'm a like, super rah-rah Amherst person. Um, so yeah, I would say I love my time there. And I was very excited that NYU is purple because ever since I got into Amherst, purple became my favorite color. <laughs> and what was your experience like at another purple school? I will say when I started the MD-PhD, everybody around me, I felt, and this, this will touch on just imposter syndrome, which I think a lot of people will feel, even if it's not justified. And I just felt everyone around me had either done like one or two years of full-time research. And they seemed to, you know, at various seminars and when scientists were giving talks, I felt like everybody else understood what this speaker was talking about, except me. Um, I later learned that that's, that happens to everybody all the time. It still happens to me after my PhD, right? So um, having those feelings is totally fine. Um, and I will say a lot of other programs and they're like, when you get a biology degree, you've done like 20, 25 classes in that major, whereas Amherst, because they value a broader, you know, education and the like requirements for a biology major were not as strict as some of my friends. So I would say like early on, I felt behind quote unquote, but ultimately you catch up quick. And I would never trade like my classes at Amherst um, for feeling slightly more prepared in my first year or two, right? I, my favorite memories, my favorite classes, some of them are in science and I love science, but I really, really love, you know, my law and jurisprudence classes, just like random classes that were very interesting and totally not related to what I'm doing now, but um, do, I think to this day, help me communicate well help me think about issues, whether they're in science or outside of science, like, you know, the broader world, which is very important, um, and help me meet a lot of people with different interests from me at Amherst, who are like very close friends with me to this day. Oh, that's so wonderful and reassuring to hear. So at NYU, what did you research? Yeah, I joined um, Susan Schwab's lab at NYU, and she did some really pioneering work showing how lymphocytes, these are like T cells, um, move 
from place to place in your body. So the immune system's miraculous because it's kind of an organ that has to be everywhere and move everywhere throughout your body because you can get infected or you can get cancer wherever in your body, right? Um, and so her lab really focuses on, well, how does the immune system actually do this? How do different cell types do this like dance with each other so that they can cover all parts of the body so that they can get together, get activated in the appropriate ways, you know, fight infections and fight different things as, as they need to. Um, so I did, did basically a immune cell trafficking or immune cell movement research. Um, and I'll touch on the two projects very briefly. So the first project was on natural killer cells. They're a type of lymphocyte um, that are good at killing uh, virus cells and some bacterial infections and cancers. And the project was showing that these cells, and a lot of them live inside your lymph nodes, they sort of sit at the edges of the lymph nodes because when a pathogen comes in and gets the lymph node, it comes in from the edges of the lymph nodes. And if the natural killer cells are displaced from the edges, they get lost in the middle, for example, then they can't respond as quickly when an infection comes in. And so we sort of showed how important it is that they are situated at the edge of the lymph nodes in order to do their job. The second project, which actually just got accepted, and I'm excited that it's gonna um, come out soon, um, it basically, we wanted to find a way to prevent T cells from getting outside of lymph nodes. The point of that is like a lot of disease, a lot of autoimmune diseases are caused by T cells getting to the organ that is damaging and then damaging that organ. So the idea is if you can trap the T cells inside the lymph nodes, and prevent them from getting out and getting to your brain and causing multiple sclerosis, for example, then you'll prevent all that damage. And so we came up with a, a new way, a new protein target to inhibit and to prevent the T cells from getting out of the lymph nodes. Um, and there are you know, drug discovery efforts going on um, to target that protein. And so that was a pretty um, exciting project as well. Now, from this immunology background, how did you decide that you wanted to pursue dermatology? It's funny, I think if you asked me early in medical school and then throughout my PhD, um, what specialty I would do, dermatology would probably be like the lowest on the list. I had wanted to do oncology, like cancer research and cancer, uh, treat cancer patients for a long time. Um, and then in med school, I loved helping cancer patients, but it was so sad actually that there were days that I would like come home from med school being in the hospital and just be like crying. And I was like, this is a really intense life. Very, very fulfilling to be able to help those patients, but it was just like a little too intense. And so then I was sort of looking into what other fields that um, I could see myself doing. And through a lot of talking to different people in different fields, and this is something I would absolutely recommend, you know, the next generation and recommend everyone to do, which is just reach out and talk to people about their lives and why they did what they did and if they like it and what they don't like. And you'll find that people, um, as you're finding now, love talking about themselves and telling you about themselves, right? So um, just reach out. I think you'll find a lot of people want to tell you and, and chat with you. But I basically talked to a lot of people and one person was 
fabulously excited about dermatology. He was also an MD-PhD from NYU. He was doing research and he was like, derm is the best. Derm patients come in with a thing that they can see is bad and then you treat it and it goes away and they see that it's better. And it's just like, it's very rewarding in that sense. Um, it's also a very interesting field. I think throughout med school, I just assumed that, you know, you were seeing the same couple things all day that were not that interesting. Um, I have found that even those we call bread and butter things like acne are still very interesting, but more than that, there are truly so many weird inflammatory skin diseases that I still can't wrap my head around. And so it's a very interesting field. And then the last thing I'll say is that it's a great field for doing research. So you're, there aren't that many skin emergencies. So if there are a lot of emergencies in your field, then you are spending a lot of time dealing with those emergencies. Um, and that can be difficult to have like a big research program if you're pulled away into the clinic a lot. And so Durham is a field where you can actually see a lot of patients in a half day or one day a week and devote the rest of your time to research. And so that was attractive to me. And then finally you can get um, skin samples for research because um, you're doing biopsies on, on skin frequently. And so that was also an attractive part of Durham. You had mentioned earlier that your parents actually cautioned you against a career in medicine because you would be seeing people on their worst days. Do you feel like that has been the case in your experience? And how do you balance supporting people on their worst days while maintaining your own well-being? So one thing I'll say about that is it has just not been it has just not been sad. It's it's a very rewarding feeling. And you, most people have this, right? Like if you have a friend or family member and they trust you enough to come to you and ask for help and you feel like you've provided them some sort of help, it's very rewarding, actually. Um, it's not like, I mean, I guess it depends, but it's typically not like you came and asked for me for help and now I'm sad, right? It's like a human connection building thing to be able to hear the problem and try to help. And so to a large extent, this whole fear of being like, you're just seeing people when they're upset um, has, not, has not been a bad thing. It's actually a pretty rewarding thing to be able to have the privilege of having all of these people trust you to provide them with help, right? So that's, that's been great. As I said, if all I was seeing were like very um, end stage patients all the time, that would be harder for me. My husband's going to do oncology and, um, you know, he is able to handle that. And I will say that he's likely going to have deeper connections with his patients than I do just by the nature of what the patients are going through. And so to, you know, to each their own in terms of what they're able to handle and what they find rewarding and, and interesting for, for their job. Um, and so in terms of balancing this kind of thing. Medicine can be really hard. There are definitely hard days. There are days where you feel like you could have done a patient done better for a patient. There are days you worry that you messed something up for a patient. And those are going to be really hard days. And I think more and more people are encouraging doctors and, and peer, your peers in the field to be more open about that because it, it does happen to everybody. We just are afraid to talk about it. And so on those hard days, I think 
talking about it with people is helpful. Certainly having a spouse in the profession has been helpful as well because you know, you just you you've had those moments yourself and you can understand them and talk talk each other through them. That's a really good way to look at medicine. Now while being a physician, you also plan on being a scientist. What would you like to research? It's still immunology and it may have like a cell movement, cell trafficking kind of angle to it, but it's still too early um, to, exact, to tell you exactly, because I won't actually um, be back in the lab for another year-ish, but I'm gonna start thinking about it now. So it'll be immunology uh, in the skin. So I'm training to be a dermatology physician and um, a lot of the skin diseases are overactive immune system, too much inflammation in the skin. And so it's a really good, uh, the skin is a really good organ to study for immunology. So the way I see it, there are two main responsibilities as a scientist. One, your research, and the other is communicating it. In terms of communicating your research, you started Journal Club. Could you describe what the organization is? Yeah, so, the Journal Club platform, basically when scientists publish big papers that are coming out in journals, um, it invites them to give a talk on their work. It's just a 10 to 15 minute long talk. And it's usually done by the first author of the paper. So those are usually either postdocs or grad students, whoever did a bulk of the work. And it gives them an opportunity to explain to people the background of their story, what their story is and how they did it. And that was very exciting to me because it's very hard to read scientific papers, especially if they're not in your field. And I think if you ask 10 scientists, nine of them will be like, I wish I read more or kept up with the literature more. It's just like very hard and time consuming. Um, but you'll, you'll find that scientists love going to meetings and love hearing scientific talks. It's more engaging often, it's more fun. And someone explaining it to you, showing you the figure and explaining what they did is easier to grasp more quickly. And so when I was doing my PhD, I sort of was like, I wish this was a thing. I wish it existed. And it seems like it wouldn't be too hard because every scientist who publishes a paper has given a talk on their work, minimally many, many times. <laughs> Um, in lab meeting and many of them have given talks, et cetera. And so you just need those people for one of those times to just record it and then put it up. And then that will let everybody see their work in a, a visual video format. So that's what we were trying to do. Um, I don't know, the, the big dream is, you know, most of these papers that come out should just come with a talk. The scientists who need to read your paper closely because it's in your field are still going to read your paper. Um, but the scientists who are just slightly outside of your field, who would never otherwise have the time to read your paper, can now see what you did, see the key figures in about 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes. So I think that that helps spread science. It helps people from other fields understand more about those other fields um, or, or understand science like even slightly outside their field. And I think that's going to help scientists sort of communicate better about their science, but also get ideas from other fields of science that can inspire their own creativity and their own, their own work. 
That's awesome. Now, I noticed on the Journal Club website that you currently focus on biomedical research. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, there are a few reasons for that. Um, one, that's my expertise. I mean, my expertise is really immunology and, and a, a slice of medicine. And so when I was thinking about who I can, basically all my friends do biomedical research and those are the people I knew. So the people I was gonna initially ask to make a video were all biomedical. Uh, my connections in the science community are biomedical. And while I would love to just be like the platform for all of science, it was like, I didn't feel like I could watch a physics video and have any sense of like, whether it was, um, a good video or not, whether like it, it made sense or not. So that's why we sort of focus on that to basically not spread ourselves too thin. I figured if we um, can be useful to a smaller community first and get a good traction in that community, then at least we'll be very helpful for that community and then expand, expand after that. Um, I will say that I've, I've found that I do not need to be a gatekeeper for these um, talks that Scientists are very serious people who are very, you know, hard workers and they do good work and they want to for, like explain their science well. And so now, now basically the gatekeeper is like, did you publish a paper that was peer reviewed and this legitimate science? And if yes, um, we basically trust the scientists to give a good talk. And we've not had to, you know, reject a talk because it was given super poorly. Like everybody realizes this is a talk that's going to be out there for the public to see and by and large everyone does like a phenomenal job and when you first share a journal club with your friends and your mentors how is it received so everyone was like yeah that seems like a no-brainer we're like just you know the talks being online would be helpful to scientists um and one of the fears i had was like this seems like such a no-brainer that if i were to start it i feel like literally anybody could do it better than me and just like do it and like crush me. Um, and I decided that one, that would be fine. Like the reason I made this thing is because I wish it existed and it didn't exist. And if someone wants to come in and do it better than me and make it bigger, then that's great. Like I you know, right now my dream is to be a scientist that sees patients. And so if someone wants to come in and do it and do it better, like amazing, right? So that was fine. Um, and then two, I had a friend who I was talking to who'd been to business school. I was like, should I start this thing? I don't know. I feel like I'm just gonna get crushed. And he was basically like, yeah, like a lot of these companies have a lot of money and resources, but like, don't underestimate the fact that like you want to do it. Like all of there's, uh, you know, millions of people billions of people in the world and like no one is no one has like the time and the passion to do it and like don't discount that and so you know that's kind of been true like we've been out there tons of scientists know we exist and nobody's trying nobody's like you know trying to take it or anything that could <laughs> that could be because it's not as good of an idea as i think it is or or what i don't know but but um that's sort of that's sort of where we are right now. <laughs> so Journal Club was started about two years ago, a little bit before the pandemic. Did the pandemic impact or redirect Journal Club in any way? I think that um, 
if you're in the science world now, you know that all of our conferences have been shifted to virtual. All of our meetings are virtual. I mean, you don't have to be in science to know to know that. <laughs> um, and there are a lot of efforts now to do sort of online formats of a lot of these sciencey things. And we felt like we had a head start because we started in May of 2019. So, you know, seven, eight months before COVID really shut everything down. And so we had a head start and we were already getting talks in. I will say when COVID happened, it was just like, it made Journal Club make even more sense because everything was switching to online and we were finding that online versions can be very successful in conveying um, scientific ideas. So that actually, in a lot of people's minds, made it make even more sense to have a platform like this, number one. Um, number two, I think we actually found more success when we invited people to give talks. So when I invite someone to give a talk, it'll be like, they're interested, but then the number of people who follow through with it and, and submit a talk is probably 30% once they say they're interested. So it's just like, everyone's like, it's a great idea, but then you have to sit down and actually record it, right? And during COVID, like nobody could even go in and do their lab work and they just had time. So it actually, I think, gave us more traction during COVID when people were, were home and making more talks. Um, and then we, we did want to, as a lot of scientists and organizations tried to pivot, to be like helpful in the effort. And we thought that, you know, if we could get a lot of COVID research um, on our platform, then that could also inspire a community of COVID researchers to come and talk with each other and put their papers on. It turns out that if you were doing research on COVID at the time, you had no time to do literally anything else. <laughs> So we would invite a lot of COVID researchers to give talks, but they were just so, so busy, you know, in the lab. And they were the ones who like were allowed to keep working in the lab and that they really just didn't have time. So our COVID branch of like subject matter did not get flushed out as much, but I think that COVID um, did illustrate that such platforms um, are, are very useful now and moving forward. Out of all the talks you've posted, which is your favorite? Um, there were a couple um, early on that I was like, I felt so fortunate that the authors were interested in giving a talk and then they give, gave these like fabulous talks. Um, and if there's a way, maybe we'll link to them in the article. Um, but there was one talk by Jin Zhang and I think she's starting up her own lab now, um, but basically tracking how we taste the sour taste like anything sour, like tracking that from the tongue to the brain and like the pathway of understanding sour tastes, which was just a huge, impressive body of work. And it um, was exciting to me because I love vinegar and sour things and I'll put vinegar in like all my dishes and stuff. And so that was just like personally interesting to me. Um, and a second um, paper out of uh, Rockefeller I think her name was Lauren. I'll have to I'll have to remember the names and actually give due credit um, where it's due. But this lab studies mosquitoes and what um, they're attracted to, what makes them bite and behave the way they do. And again, the personal connection was that I have very quote unquote sweet blood, 
and get bitten a lot by a lot of mosquitoes. And so um, almost anything that comes out of that lab is, is pretty interesting to me, but I will have to, oh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the, the authors off the top of my head. Now, beyond getting to listen to so many cool research talks, what is the most rewarding part of Journal Club to you? Interesting. I'll probably say two things. Um, one is that we're probably getting, I don't, I'm trying to remember, maybe 2,000 unique visitors to our site a month. That's not a super high traffic site. That's not like we're, we're not going viral or anything. But I certainly have never done anything where, you know, 2,000 visitors, presumably many of them are scientists, are, are visiting and hopefully deriving some value from um, some of these videos. So just being able to have even a small impact like that, where I'm hoping that, you know, I've shown people more science and maybe that science has helped them in their own work. So that seems very rewarding um, because I am sort of driven by hopefully being able to like make a difference. Taras Radian, you know? <laughs> um, so that's, you know, we're certainly not a huge organization that's getting, you know, a million eyeballs a month, but that has been pretty fun. The other thing would be just, you know, when scientists are like, essentially, you know, thank you for doing this, it makes sense. And like, we're really excited about this platform because again, that suggests to me that we're onto something that's gonna help scientists and that's the ultimate goal. Has running Journal Club changed the way that you approach your own research? That's a great question. Well, to answer that, I have to like discuss this MDPAT path um, for a little bit. So when you do your MDPAT in most programs, it's two years of med school, then four-ish years of PAT, depending how fast or slow it goes. Then the last two years of med school, you finish. And those last two years of med school, you're not really doing research anymore. You're like finishing med school. So it's very like broken up. Then after med school, you do some residency, some clinical training. That's the part I'm at. And then after those years of clinical training, you're probably four to four-ish or more years away from your PAT. So I haven't done research in, in four years. Wow. Um, and just now am I basically gearing up again to jump into the research world. And this time, finally, when I do the research world, this is where the true marriage of the MD and PhD starts, where you, you, you have a lot of time to work on your research. And then you also are seeing patients that can vary from a half day to one-ish days a week on average for the year. Um, so all that to say, you know, during this journal club, period, I've not actually been able to do any hardcore scientific research. What I will say that's been helpful is because I'm seeing the videos as they come through and I get to watch these 10 to 15 minute talks. And to some extent, it's like part of my journal club job to, to watch some of these videos. I feel like I'm still part of the research community. I am still seeing the newest, latest research come out. And I very rarely have time to sit down and read a ton of papers right now, but it's useful that I can sit down and in an hour understand somewhat what like four groups in the country have recently done. 
Um, and that has, is helping me, you know, when I watch the immunology videos, for example, that helps keep, keep my immunology fresh. And then when I watch a random, random video, as I said, it's like helps you be creative in terms of how you want to think about your research projects moving forward. Um, and so I think that it's just helped me stay in the loop a little bit of the research for now. And we'll see, we'll see it, you know, as I move back into the lab, um, how much, you know, Journal Club videos and watching them and curating them, if they remain helpful to me. My sense is yes, we'll see though. <laughs> so the ASN audience is primarily members of the Amherst College community. Is there any way we can help or even get involved with Journal Club? Such a nice question. Um, we do have some efforts of getting scientists and students involved with Journal Club. We have an ambassadors program and the ambassador program was born out of the fact that my husband and I both went to NYU. So that's where our networks were. Um, and we could ask our networks if they were interested in giving our, a talk and we could, you know, show our networks that Journal Club was useful, but you know, for the rest of the country and all these other institutions, we didn't really have roots there. And so we figured if we had ambassadors around the country who are also interested in improving science communication and interested in picking out people who might give a great talk for Journal Club, then you know, it'd be easier to get a diversity of talks from, from the country. Um, so that has been one way that people have gotten involved. That um, is often people who are working in labs. And so that's kind of a requisite for us, for that position at least. Um, but I would say we're really trying to um, get more like articles that are helpful for scientists, students, student scientists and you know, postdoc scientists and even senior scientists. Um, so if anybody is interested in, in writing something for the Journal Club platform, like we really are looking for that. Um, and other things in terms of Journal Club, like we all have full-time jobs. And so sometimes it's hard for us to conceptualize a project for Journal Club and make it come to fruition. Um, these include outreach programs to different universities or colleges. Um, it can include ways we want to essentially advertise the platform to students and scientists. We just basically don't have that much bandwidth to do that. And so if anybody has ideas for General Club and wants to like hop aboard and, and help us do those things, that would be super welcomed. Um, and then finally, just telling people about General Club if you find General Club helpful, um, I think is a very helpful thing for, for our platform. Because um, I do suspect that, you know, as I said before, the goal is for like most papers to come with a talk. And in order to get there, like most scientists need to know that, that it exists. So looking back at all the stories you've shared, do you think you could have planned where you are today with your career as a physician scientist, but also with Journal Club? Um, I would say, are you, maybe I'll touch on both the Journal Club part or the like, MD, PhD, physician scientist part? I suppose both. Mm -hmm. By senior year, because I had, you know, was applying and gotten into the MD, PhD programs, then I had a decent idea 
I will say though, even after I um, applied for the MD PhD programs, there was a part of me that was like, oh my gosh, it's eight years long. Seems very long. Should I just do the PhD? Should I just do the MD? Maybe I should just do the MD because like, I don't know, that's what like a lot of my relatives thought was cool. And I remember talking to somebody um, who was an MD PhD student at the time, just like pick their brains, see if they could advise me. And again, this is my advice, just like cold call people and like talk to them. Like this person didn't know me, right? But she actually offered me amazing advice. She was just like, tell me why you wanna do the MD. Tell me why you wanna do the PhD. And at the end of it, she was like, you know, like your voice lights up more when you do, when you're talking about research. And I think that like, it might be a bummer if you like forego that. Um, and so ultimately I, you know, decided to do both and I'm so pleased about it. And if anybody wants to talk to me about it, you know, give them my email. I'm happy to discuss this path with them. It's not for everybody. Tons of people are gloriously happy doing one or the other. And a ton of people are really, really happy doing both. Um, so, you know, by the end end of senior year, which would have been like a few weeks before starting the MDPHC, I was certainly very excited for it. And, you know, what I'm doing now was the goal back then. I would say the ultimate goal is still to run a research lab that's doing translational research that helps patients ultimately one day. Um, I, that is the goal, but I'm also realistic that it's hard to get that lab. And I'm impressed by anybody who ends up being able to be a professor and, and, and run a lab. So I'm gonna try it, but I also am giving myself like a deadline of like five, four or five years in the postdoc. And if it's not panning out, like that is okay. I have other passions and interests. And if you have either of those degrees, you're really gonna be okay. So it's like, there's, there's little, there's not so much fear, right? Like I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna shoot for those stars um, and hope and hope to, to meet those goals, but regardless, like science, medicine, communication, industry, like there is so much useful, good work that needs to be done out there. Um, and so, you know, to be determined what, where I am in five or 10 years. Um, journal club, no, I've never would have thought about it. Like starting, a, starting an organization, that's definitely not something that I imagined myself doing. But again, I am driven by sort of hope, hopefully being able to make a difference um, for others. And so this, when I started, it seemed like a good way to maybe be able to do that. And so, you know, we'll see as well where that goes. Now, continuing this pattern of looking back, is there any one piece of advice you would share with an Amherst College student, whether they be your younger self or a current student like me? This may not be um, like a go do this type of advice, but I just want people to know that you are gonna feel out of your comfort zone a lot. You're gonna feel like the person next to you is wildly better at X, Y, and Z. And like, are you gonna make it? Or like, are you good enough? All this stuff. And as I, because I have felt that throughout, um, and I think that, you know, I'm at a top residency and top research program now, 
And I still feel that. So I think that my tip is just because you feel that does not mean you don't belong. Like tell yourself you belong and you can do it. Um, I think a theme throughout my path here is that I'm always like, am I smart enough? Am I doing this well enough? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And just know that the vast majority of people around you have those feelings too. Like we're all just doing our best, trying to learn and make it to the next step. And that like, don't let that feeling itself um, dissuade you from doing something that you are interested in doing. It's really inspiring to hear you not only talk about your accomplishments as a scientist and the CEO of Journal Club, but also to hear how you overcame that little voice in your head that so many of us have. So thank you again, Victoria, for being so open about your thoughtfulness. I mean, something I know that I'll walk away from this conversation with, and I hope our audience does too, is that you should never underestimate the fact that you want to do something. If you would like to learn more about Journal Club and hear some of their content, check out their website, journalclub.org. That's spelled J-R-N-L-C-L-U-B dot O-R-G. This website is also linked in our podcast transcript. Like the research articles on ASN, they also post articles about cool science topics generally. Now with these resources, I hope you stay curious, stay informed, and stay tuned for more. Thank you.